Please join me in the reading of God's word. Hebrews 13, 1 through 14. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Thanks, Tracy. Well, I want to um, want to play a little game as an introduction tonight. Okay, and I promise this doesn't mean calling on anyone. I have no idea how this will go, by the way. So if Maybe just for sympathy's sake, you play along. It would be really helpful for me. The game is called Name That Story. It's a simple game. I'm going to read a line or two of plot description. Okay? And if you're brave enough, I want you to shout out the name of the story that fits the description. Um, Be creative. But remember this caveat, you are in church. Okay? I think that should go with you. So here's the first one. Three rounds here. First one goes like this. A dangerous uh, monster threatens a community. Oh, 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 that's too energetic. Let, let, I, got, I got another line here, okay? I do appreciate that, though. One man or woman or team takes it on himself to kill the beast and restore happiness to the kingdom. Now go. Jaws. I heard Jaws and Ghostbusters. What a great movie, by the way. Yeah, Ghostbusters. Anybody visited the fire station there in New York where Ghostbusters was filmed? Maybe? No, I did. So, what else? Think of anything else? Godzilla, King Kong, okay. All right. I didn't hear Star Wars. I didn't hear, I mean, come on now. Star Wars, right? Um, The Hobbit, okay. Every episode of the show House, if you've ever seen House before. Okay, depends on the latitude with which you use the word monster. Um, Aaron Brockovich could fit in that as well. I thought of that. I thought that was pretty creative of me. Okay. Every James Bond film might be that storyline as well. Okay, round two. You did a good job there. Round two goes like this. 
our hero stumbles into a brave new world. At first, he is captivated by its splendor and glamour, but slowly, things become more sinister. Go. Harry Potter? Okay. Is that here? Wizard of Oz? Pocahontas. Okay, Pocahontas, too. That's exactly right. Wizard of Oz. I gave that one away. What did I hear over here? What? The Truman Show. Great. Yeah, great call. I didn't write that one down. Toy Story 3? When they go into the, nur- the, the seriously, when they go into the nursery and the big bear, you know, and okay, so, okay, so in honor of David Bowie, maybe you weren't subjected to this movie growing up. Did anyone see Labyrinth? Anybody? No one. What a weird movie, right? Have you ever gone back and watched it now? Anyway, Labyrinth. The Matrix. The Matrix. I said that, but okay, Paul. Thanks for listening. We know where you're gonna be listening tonight. You're a pastor. All right, uh, and, and you know, depending on what. Um, uh, uh, depending on the brave new world, it could be The Firm, right? Between The Firm, a new job, Um, the American classic Mean Girls, right? Once she gets into the clique. Someone's seen Mean Girls. Okay, final round, round three. Here we go. When a community finds itself in peril and learns the solution lies in finding and retrieving an elixir that is far away, member of the community of the tribe takes it on themselves to undergo the perilous journey into the unknown. What do you think? Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I deserve that one. That was good. Wizard of Oz is good. The Odyssey. This is good. The Odyssey. We were, so, so he reached way back, didn't you? The Odyssey. Good. What else? What did I hear? Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Great movie, good. What else? Anything else you can think of? What'd you say? Monty Python? There you go, yeah. The parody of every great quest movie, right? Indiana Jones? Minions. And depending on how you define the, the, the elixir, right, with minions, um, I, I thought of Legally Blonde. I thought that was a good call, right? She goes, oh, see, I see, you know, she goes into law school herself and... Another American classic there. Okay, we'll try to stop there and recover. So the Atlantic Monthly published an article at the first of this month. And the name of the article was, All Stories Are the Same. All Stories Are the Same. The article was written by uh, John York. He's a British TV producer who has spent his own life uh, writing and producing and editing and now trying to understand uh, this, the, the, um, the, the narrative arcs, the stories that we crave as human beings. In the article, York writes this. He says, though our enduring stories are superficially different, they all share the same framework and the same story engine. All plunge their characters into a strange new world. All involve a quest to find a way out of it. In whatever form they choose to take in every story, monsters are vanquished. All at some level, too, have as their goal safety, security, completion, and the importance of home. He ends the article with this conclusion. He says this, storytelling is an indispensable human preoccupation, almost as important, he writes, as breathing. From the mythical campfire tale to its explosion in the post-television age, storytelling dominates our lives. It behooves us, he writes, this is how he concludes, it behooves us then to try and understand why that 
is so. So all stories are the same, and it behooves us to try to understand why that is the case. So I just want to take his challenge up for a moment, okay? In your own mind, I want you to think to yourself, why do you think it is that we are so enamored with heroic journeys and the vanquishing of monsters and the quest for completion, (laughs) for safety, for security, and finally getting home? Why is it that that narrative engine is so compelling, not just in our time and place, but across the generations? You know, I was thinking about this, you know, one guess would be because it really does fit our earliest experiences as children, if you think about it. Sort of our first quest as kids is what? To sleep through the night, right? And so that's the great quest, to sleep through the night. And the monsters are what? The noises that we hear that we think are underneath our bed. And security occurs when the, when the sun comes up the next day and we wake up way too early for our parents because that is not their quest, right? Their quest is for more sleep. And we get up and we, we, you know, we open our eyes to greet the security of a new day. That's one thought. Another guess would be um, that there's an evolutionary reason for all this, right? Um, think about it. The, that narrative engine really does fit with our quest to survive as a species. So you could put it like this. The human race is on a heroic journey, and there are monsters to be vanquished. What are those monsters? Well, they're predators. <laughs> uh, they're diseases. They're, um, uh, they're natural causes, natural uh, disasters. And so on this account, you would say, well, we tell these stories to motivate our own survival as a race. But, you know, there's some, like, I don't know, deeply uh, disturbing fallacy uh, about that. And that is that we have to, like, um, we have to delude ourselves with the fiction of home in order to do that. You think about that? So in that narrative, on that account, there is no such thing as home. There's no such thing as completion. There's no such thing as finally getting anywhere. There are only more monsters, right, and more journeying, and more journeying, and more monsters until it all ends in universal collapse and extinction. Try that on as a bedtime story. Now, son, go to bed. It all burns up. (laughs) Well, there's a different reason, though. What if the reason that we tell enduring stories about quests and monsters and the hope of home is because in the end all of those stories are actually true? That we really are on a journey, that the way that you framed your life even now is basically a quest and there really are monsters standing in your way and there is a home, there is a place of completion that you and I and everyone else aches so badly to find. You know, one... um, famous Christian said that, you know, one of the reasons that we tell those other stories is because they are derivatives of a truer story. And that truer story makes the most sense of who we are and why we are here and where we have to go in order to get where we naturally, not naturally maybe, but where we realistically belong in the end. And that truer story, of course, if you're a Christian, is the story that the Bible claims for itself. From the opening lines of Genesis where a home is forged and then lost to the final amen of Revelation. That's how Revelation ends with amen. Where a home in Revelation 21, the final chapter, where home is finally regained. And all those passages in between where monsters are battled and pain is endured, the Bible is about a long journey towards completion. It's about a long journey towards home. Now, why do I tell you all that? Why is that important tonight as we finish out Winter Grace, especially on a night that is dedicated to the theme of mission? I'm telling you that because I want you to see that it's all mission. (laughs) 
that it's all mission. That we live in a world that is oriented towards journeys and quests and monsters and the desperate search for fulfillment. We do live in a missional world. So that what sets the church apart, our Christians apart, is not that we alone are on some kind of mission. Listen to any presidential candidate right now, right? Uh, um, the Super Bowl's coming up. Listen to the, to the interview with the starting left tackle. Uh, listen to a, a toddler who hasn't had her afternoon snack. Uh, life is mission. What sets the church apart is that we believe that our mission is not ours to define. That we belong to another. And so when we walk out into the world, when we walk out into our own homes, we don't merely go, we are sent in the name of Jesus. You are sent into the world. Another way of saying it is you are a missionary. A church is a missionary community sent together, just like the community we just read about in Hebrews, sent together out into the world in the name of another, in the name of Jesus himself. We don't just go on our own journeys. We are sent in the name of Jesus out into the world. So what in the world does that mean practically? And that's what I want to unpack tonight from these final exhortations in the book of Hebrews. I want to think about that question itself, and I want to do so with these three questions in mind tonight. Here's the first one. Where is it that we find ourselves being sent? Where are we sent? We're sent in the name of another one. Where does Jesus actually call us to go in his name? What is the scope or the field of the mission for us as a church? Number two, what is it that animates or empowers that journey? You know, all journeys are long, right? There has to be something that would... I don't know, that would keep us going through the fatigue and the discouragement and the doubt. What is it that empowers the journey that Jesus has sent us on? And then finally, and very practically, I want to answer a couple of questions about how all of this in Hebrews 13 affects your daily interactions in the world. How does it all affect how you interact in the world? Let's take those in turn tonight. Number one, where are we sent? Where does our mission actually take place. Well, let me, let me answer that question by telling you a little bit about the community to which this particular letter was written. So the original audience here in Hebrews is second and third generation Christians. They've been around a little bit. You know, they've seen things. They've had parents who raised them in the faith. Um, in this community, they're mostly Jewish, but they're living in Rome, which just makes them uh, religious and ethnic minorities. They're, you know, they're, they're not the majority. They're not dominant in any way. Um, they're also survivors. So this little community has already survived in their journey these few things. They've already survived the confiscation of their homes and their property. Uh, the, the letter alludes to that. They've already survived banishment from the city. They've been allowed to come back, but they've already been made to leave the city altogether. They've had to flee with nothing to take for themselves. They've survived um, the imprisoning and execution of some of their leaders. And get this, they've survived the public humiliation of their parents. That seems maybe not as bad as the other ones, but can you imagine that for yourself? The public humiliation of your parents. What I want you to see is that each day for them really is a mission, a journey into the scary unknown. Each day with Jesus is a mission into something very scary. 
So for them, each stranger that they welcome into their fellowship could be the next accuser that helps prosecute them in court. Each time that they go and visit a prisoner um, is a chance they take that they could be aligned or, you know, um, uh, uh, made to be aligned with his cause. You know, they could be in, indicted for his crimes. Each act of worship and devotion could be construed as treason, right? As loyalty to someone or something other than the emperor. This little community is living in the most advanced and the most cosmopolitan city in history up to this point. It has great food, guys. <laughs> it has great entertainment. There is financial opportunity for them, so much to offer as an actual home if they'll just renounce their extremism and settle into the city like normal people. Think about this. They have their children to think about. And they have little ones. They have the happiness and the well-being and the future of their own dear, precious children. These are the voices of doubt and fatigue and discouragement that keep pounding away at their souls. And in that moment, a preacher from somewhere that we don't know where, we don't know his name, we don't think, has written them this letter to encourage them in their journey. And what he does throughout the letter is he reminds them that their mission does not terminate in the glorious city of Rome, no matter how great it is. It terminates in a city that has been built by God and opened to them by Jesus himself. And as with any mission, until they get home, they are supposed to live in this present moment as sojourners, as exiles, as strangers, running the race, not that they have chosen, but the race that God himself has set before them until they finish that race. Now, here's what I want you to do. I've told you all that. I want you to put yourself in their shoes. The burden of faithfulness in that context has fallen to you. Wouldn't you think in that context that the best way to stay faithful, that the best way to finish the journey, the race that they've been called to run, wouldn't you think that it would be to err on the side of caution? Wouldn't you? And wouldn't you think that the best way to finish this is to stay confined to your own people where it's safe, right? And you sort of put your head down. Rome's a big city. I mean, we're in a big church. You can hide in a big church sometimes, but imagine being able to hide in a big city. Basically, what you do is you do your thing over here as a Christian. You let everyone else do their thing over there, and maybe, just maybe, you can slide under the radar. Is that the direction that the preacher points them in Hebrews 13. It's not, is it? Let's look at verse 1 just for a moment. Let's, I just want to look at the first three verses and cover this fairly quickly. Let, verse 1, he says this, let brotherly love continue. Okay, so, uh, you know, not too surprising there. In other words, you're supposed to love the church. We talked about that last night. Paul talked about that. One of the things that he mentioned uh, clearly that's important to say even here is um, if you consider the church your brothers and sisters, by definition, you don't get to choose them. These aren't people that you normally would like or befriend. They're the people that God has given you to love. Okay? Let brotherly love continue. Okay? Love them well. Love the church well. Part of the mission. Love the church well. Look at verse 2. The preacher says, don't neglect to welcome strangers. Okay. Um, what is he saying? Well, uh, love not only those that you sort of like. Love not only those that maybe you can trust on occasion, but I want you to love those that you've never met and have no reason to trust. 
And I just want you to imagine for a moment how scary it is for you to welcome a complete stranger around your own dinner table. And this time. And imagine then how scary it was for them. Open your home up to people you don't know and have no reason to trust. Imagine the fear. Verse 3, remember the prisoner and the mistreated. That is, don't forget that they too need your presence. He's not just saying remember them mentally. He's saying align yourself with them. The only way that you can do that well, encourage them in your own ministry, is you have to go and visit them. You have to go be with them and identify with them if you are able. And that means you're aligning yourself with them in front of the empire. Look, what I want you just to notice in these first exhortations is never once in Hebrews chapter 13, you can read the rest of the chapter as well, never once does the preacher say under enormous pressure that you as Christians are called to play it safe. Never once. Never once does he said, shut the world out because the world hates you. Never once. Even if you find yourself up against the strongest empire in the world, they are missionaries. They are missionaries sent out in the name of Jesus to love the world in a way that is deeply, deeply perilous to themselves. And I just want you to notice the scope of their mission in verses 5 through 6. Just a few others. So we find in verses 5 through 6 that that mission for this little community takes place in the church. It takes place among our own brothers and sisters that we sort of like, sort of trust. We're not really sure all the time, but that's one space. It takes place with strangers. It takes place with the people that God just brings you. You didn't ask for them. That he brings into your lives. It takes places in prisons and on the fringes of the city. In verse 3, among the mistreated. Look at verse 4. Mission takes place in verse 4 in your bedroom. In the way that you treat your own body. In the way that you treat the body of someone else. In the way that you honor the bond of marriage. Verse 5, verse 6, it takes place in your budget. In your business. In the way that your heart gets oriented towards money. So maybe you came tonight and you think, I could never be a missionary, but you are. You are a missionary. Every time that you walk into your bedroom or a boardroom or the living room, you are sent into all of those spaces in the name of Jesus. And you may be thinking tonight, what in the world does that have to do with vows? Well, I want you just to think in this direction. Every vow that you've ever taken is a missional vow. Every one of them. Every vow that you've ever taken clarifies for you, what your mission is in your life as you go forward. Think about it. What is a vow? A vow is a promise to do something in life, regardless of how you feel about that thing, regardless of your circumstance. Every vow is an I do, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. So that every time that you say I do to a spouse or to a child or to the church, Jesus is clarifying for you where he is sending you. He's giving, that, he's giving the mission a name. What is your spouse's name? That's a mission. That's your mission. He's named those children for you. You see, our vows are Jesus' answer to the question, what am I supposed to do in your name as your beloved? And what he's saying is that in my name, you're supposed to welcome the stranger. In my name, you're supposed to support the work of the church. In my name, you're supposed to to pray for those that you sent out among you. In my name, you assist the parents 
in the Christian nurture of their children. In my name, you honor the marriage bed. In my name, you remember the mistreated. In my name, you go into all these places in all of your world, and you do so in my name, so that the field that I am sending you, the field that I am sending you is the boardroom, the bedroom, the living room, and wherever else you have to go on the very fringes of the empire. Everywhere you go, you do so in my name. That is the scope of our mission. We go as missionaries in the name of Jesus. So the question then is, how in the world do we do that? Well, it seems like a, like a daunting task, and you got to remember, too, that um, you know, this community um, uh, was facing the voices of discouragement and doubt and frustration. Um, how in the world, how do we do that well? <laughs> how do we sustain that um, in our lives? Y'all, this, this church was tired. Have you ever been tired before as a Christian? They, they were tired. They were tired. for It was generational exhaustion, not just theirs individually. And that question about how do we sustain ourselves, how, do, how, do, how are we sustained in the journey to do those things well, is always, always, always in the background of mission. Because in the background of this whole discussion is, is the reality that where God has us right now, there are always, always, always more monsters to be vanquished in order to get home until we get home. And so the journey itself is fraught with challenge. And the question is, what is it that pushes us through all of those challenges? All the monsters that we fight, that we battle against. What pushes us through? Look at me at verse 5. Very simple. So in the midst of this exhortation about contentment, it's really more about contentment than it is money. The preacher reminds them of what God has said to them. He says what? God has said this to you. And what does he say? God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, how many of you have your Bibles with you open right now? Okay, good. Um, do you know when God said this to him? What is the footnote that you have in your Bibles, the citation? I'm just curious. When did God say it to him? He said he said it to him in the past tense. When has he said it to him? Anyone? What did you say? The ascension? Okay. Is that what your Bible says? Oh, the foot, oh you're, just, you're, you're saying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Anyone have Joshua? Okay, Joshua. So you see there's a lot of like kind of confusing. <laughs> well, which is it? A lot of the Bibles have Joshua 1.5. It's probably footnoted, but that's the closest wording, but it's not precise. And commentators note that there is no Old Testament citation that corresponds exactly to this text. Because this text is actually an allusion to a summary of the central divine vow that turns up throughout Israel's journey over and over again. In other words, it's not that God has said this to Israel on a specific occasion. It's that he has repeatedly said this to them at every turn in their journey. This has been the main thing that he said to them over and over and over again. What is it that empowers a community to go in the name of Jesus? It's not only that the community is sent, is that the community is accompanied by God himself. God tells the Hebrews, he tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is God's central promise to you. When God says, I do, what is he saying to you? He is centrally saying that I will never leave you nor forsake you. At the end of Matthew's gospel, you probably know how Matthew's gospel ends, some of you. We call it the Great Commission. It's where Jesus commissions his church to go where? Into the world 
and to make disciples in his name. And what does he say at the very end of that commission? He says what? For I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. What is he saying? I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you've got to be wondering tonight, how serious could a church like this and how serious can you as an individual struggling with your own faith and your own challenges, how seriously can you take that promise? Look at me at verses 11 and 12 for a moment. This is a strange little passage. Hopefully I can explain it to make it not so strange. The preacher says this, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, those animals are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Okay. So, so throughout Hebrews, um, it's a Jewish community. The preacher has been using illustrations that were, you know, that were normal for them. Part of it was the priestly system that he's connected to the work of Jesus. So this would have been familiar to them. And, and basically what you need to know is that in the Old Testament, when animals were sacrificed to cover over the sin and the shame of the people, they were taken outside of the city, outside the camp, and they were burned there. Now, why was that? Why couldn't you just burn them inside the camp? I mean, you had to walk outside the dark and do this. I mean, it's cold, whatever else. Why can't we just burn them inside the camp? Well, the Hebrew camp was set up in concentric circles of holiness. At the center of the camp was the Holy of Holies, and it radiated outward towards banishment from the camp itself. And all the ultimately unclean things that could not be redeemed were taken outside of the boundaries of the camp in order completely to be disposed of. And the preacher is saying that it was outside the camp. It was outside the city, literally. That Jesus himself, God in the flesh, was taken and put on a cross in order to make you holy. Why is that? Because what he's saying is that you deserve to be the bodies of those dead animals. That you and I deserve to be exiled from the city. That we deserve to go where only the heretics and the rebels and the lepers and the shame-bearing sacrifices went. Here's the twist. In the gospel, you have to reckon with the reality that you were the monster that needed to be vanquished in order to get the world home. That you were the monster that had to be put out of the city. And so instead of putting you out of the city... Instead of vanquishing you, God so loved you. He so loved you that he was vanquished himself in your place outside the camp. And here's the point. If God himself would come for you outside the camp at the cost of his own son, then is there any place in your life, in your failure, in your shame that he would not go for you and with you? When he says to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you, he is saying that even outside the camp in the city's version of hell, I will not only speak this promise, I will enact it before you. And so you go back to verse 5, and if God's central vow is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if we hear that vow and we trust that vow as the church, then guess what the central response should be? Look at verse 6 with me. If we believe that vow that God will never leave us nor forsake us, that it's been enacted on our behalf outside of the city, then what should our response be? What does verse 6 say? We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. For what can man do to me? 
Will you say that with me tonight? I'm going to say it and I want you to repeat it after me. The Lord is my helper. The Lord is my I will not fear. I will not fear. What, can man do to me? what can man do to me? That is the confidence of a missionary who works and who parents and who welcomes and who goes as one sent in the name of Jesus. And don't you, don't you, even as you said it, don't you want that to be true of every part of your life? Don't you want to be able to say that and mean it and be sincere about it? (laughs) If that is true for you, then let me encourage you to do this. Would you name the fears that you have in your own journey right now? In your parenting, in your work, where God has you? Would you name those fears as monsters to be vanquished and then fight those fears with the enacted vow of God in your own heart? Fight them with these words, I will never leave you nor forsake them. Never. I send you and I go with you and you have nothing to fear. Go with all the confidence. Don't play it safe. Go with all the confidence of God himself in the name of Jesus. Your vows clarify your mission, but it's God's vow to you that sustains you in it. I will never leave you nor forsake you, even outside of the camp. That's what energizes. That's what animates. That's what sustains us in the journey. It happened for this group of Hebrew Christians, and it happens for us as well. And the last thing I want us to think about tonight, just briefly, is how in the world does this impact us on a daily basis? So as we go out, we're trying to live without fear and sent out by Jesus himself. How in the world does it impact us? And I want to I do that by answering two questions, I think, that are here embedded in the text and that are your questions as well, even tonight. The first one is this. Uh, Chad, what if I'm rejected? What if I'm rejected? In other words, what if I go? And what if I speak? And what if I love? And I, I, I do it with the best of intentions. I do it in my best efforts, bathed in prayer, directed by compassion. What do I do then, even then if I'm rejected? What do I do with the pain of rejection? Look at me at verse 13. I hope this comes across as good news. <laughs> verse 13, the, uh, the preacher follows that last bit up by saying, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. And what does he say next? Uncork the champagne? Let us go outside the camp and celebrate? What does he say? Let us go outside the camp to him and bear the reproach he endured. In other words, the preacher isn't just calling you to believe in Jesus outside the camp, he's calling you to go there. To go to him outside the camp and to do what? To sit with him, to love him, to know him in his own rejection. And what he's really saying is that your rejection in his name is a door to intimacy with God for you. If you want to know Jesus better, you can bear to be rejected in his name. Now, you know this already, but have you ever, you ever gone through something painful with someone else? Really painful. A diagnosis or a broken marriage or a business venture that didn't work out. It just crushed someone. You ever been through someone like that? Okay, and you come out on the other side, and you, and you just feel like there's a bond of affection that was there that was never there before. You ever felt that before? You go through pain, and you journey through that with someone. You understand and love that person now in a new way that you never had the opportunity to to do that before just because you walked through them with it. And Jesus is saying, come know me in that way. Come know me that way. Come know me in your rejection. Come sit with me and love me here and there will be new intimacy born with me out of that pain that you can't get anywhere else. 
He's not saying go be, go be a fool and be rejected. He's saying don't be scared because rejection will happen. And out of that will be born a new intimacy that you can't get anywhere else with me. Come know me as the rejected one. What if I'm rejected? Well, you will be. You will be. But only God can do this. He can turn it into a means of grace for your own heart and soul in the journey. That's question one. The second one goes like this. What if I don't know what to say? You ever felt that before? You go out and you, you, know, you, you want to speak the gospel. You want to, um, you know, you, you want to be able to tell people about Jesus. But you just feel this gnawing insecurity that you just don't know what to say. You ever felt that before? I feel that all the time as a pastor, which I'm embarrassed to admit. But I still feel that all the time. And I, I meet with people all the time. <laughs> what if I don't know what to say? What do you do then? Well, here's what I would say. You need to learn to tell your own story. You need to learn to tell your own story. Your own story of your own quest with the monsters that you fought and your own search for home. And the only way for you to do that in any meaningful way as a Christian is to let people know that the great twist in your own story The great shift that occurred for you in your own story happened not inside the city, but outside the gates. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I want you to remember what was there outside the gates. So things were tossed outside the city gates, outside the camp, because it was the stuff that no one else wanted to see. It was the ugly, hidden realities of life that were cast out and buried so that the city didn't have to see it or smell it or confront it. And the view, of course, was out of sight, out of mind, and oh my goodness, <laughs> how many of us want to live that way? <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. If you want to share the gospel in any meaningful way, you're going to have to tell people how Jesus has met you and loved you in all the ugly, hidden realities of your own heart and life. All the places in your own soul, in your own story that you wish were out of sight and out of mind, you have to talk about in an authentic way your own brokenness, your own loneliness, your own shame, and your own fear. And not just for the sake of talking about yourself, you have to talk about how God's grace and mercy for you came to you there outside of the city. Because let me tell you, friends, if you can't talk about that, then you have no gospel to share with anyone else who's there. And here's the secret. They're all there. We're all there. That's what the Bible tells us. Whether people know it or not, we are all actually journeying outside of the city. (laughs) East of Eden, since the exile ourselves. And if you go there personally in your own life, in the God-forsaken and yet God-so-loved places of your own heart, here's the story that you'll have the, the power and the shape and the authenticity to tell others, and it won't need to be dressed up in any fancy words. You'll be able to say, God knows the worst of me, and he didn't turn his face away. He promised to love me, and he enacted that promise in a way that has deeply changed me. And let me tell you, friend, he is with you. He is with you. And he can change you. And he can bring you home. And that is the story that we all wish were true anyway, right? That's the story we all wish were true. It's the story that we've been telling each other in so many ways across generations, aching for the hope that someone would come and find us outside of the camp. And so you get to be, we get to be as a church sent now in the name of Jesus, 
to live and to proclaim that that story that we want to be true really is true, and it's better than you've ever thought before. All because God himself looked at us outside the camp and he said, I do. He said, I do. I will never leave you nor forsake you even there. The call for us in mission is always the same. It's not to play it safe. I don't know. I don't care how the culture's changing. <laughs> and I'm sure it is. It was for them too. Let's not play it safe. The Lord is our helper. The Lord is our helper. What is there to fear? Amen. Okay, so I've asked Jerry now to come up and pray for us to close our time. We're going to sing. Jerry, if you don't know, is our director of missions at church planning. And I've asked us him not just to pray for the missionaries that we send out, which he should do as well. Because we make vows to them as a church. I've asked him also to pray for us as we go in the name of Jesus. And to pray as well for the world that we are sent into. So let's pray together with our hearts as we join Jerry. He's going to pray for us. Let's pray. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we love you, which is a miracle. We love you because you loved us first. We gather together today because you're worthy of our worship, you're worthy of our time, you're worthy of our praise. Jesus, you had compassion upon us. We were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And you were burdened for us. Burdened to the point of coming and being slain for us. We love you and we thank you. We pray that you would make us compassionate people. People who look out at the city. People who look out at our neighbors. People who look at the world and who are burdened and who have compassion, and who see people like we were, helpless, harassed, without a shepherd. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would draw men and women to be a part of this fellowship, that you would draw men and women to yourself from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and Lord, we pray what you asked us to pray, that you would raise up laborers, workers for the harvest because it is ripe and it is ready. Make us bold because you were bold for us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand.